רגע, לפני שמתחילים, אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח ומתחילים. Hello guys and welcome to my show. This is the Woy Yozevich show and in the show I host and speak with the most interesting and influential people from all around the world to discuss science, religion, philosophy and even linguistics. And my guest today is the world-renowned Noam Chomsky or as we say him in Hebrew, Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky is a linguist by his profession, but is much more. He's one of the most famous and important intellectual of our times. He wrote over 100 books and is one of the harshest critics of US foreign policy and Israel policy in general. So Professor Noam Chomsky, many thanks for coming to the show today. How are you? Very well, glad to be with you. <laughs> Now, you are 93 years old, and we record this in the day of Tu Bishvat, the Jewish holiday for the plants and the trees. So in the spirit of the holiday, first, let me bless you that your valuable fruits will remain with humanity forever. And I want to start with just bless you with good health for many years to come. Okay? So now, let me ask you this. Sometimes... The only sin of a great and famous man is that his offsprings are even much more famous. It was a case with Amram, the father of Moses, and it was a case with Galileo and Charles Darwin, which was named after his grandparents, after his grandfather. Now, history will associate the name Chomsky with your groundbreaking work. However, your father, Zev William Chomsky, was also a great man, an author, and the linguist of the Hebrew language. So with your permission, let me start with, what is the most vivid memory that you have from your father? Well, with my father every Friday night, by the time I was seven or eight years old, we would uh, read Hebrew together, starting with simple things, uh, A couple of years later, reading Haskalah literature, Achadam, Mendele, you know, uh, Pinsker, uh, um, on. Then by then I was old enough to be reading by myself, so I went on to other things. But as long as uh, I was a child, every, that was every Friday night. Wow, this is a truly, truly nice story. Okay, so, okay, so let's uh, start with, I think, with linguistic, because there are so many things to ask you, and you cover so many things, but I think that we do need to, to still start with the beginning, with language and linguistic. Now, one, I have three questions regarding the linguistics, okay? So, one of your main findings is that although we mainly think in world, and it's hard to think without words, Human beings are born with a special instinct, a special capacity, 
a language instinct, as Steven Pinker named it, that enabled them to catch the inner structure of a language. This in part explain why children make certain grammatical mistakes often and never other grammatical mistake. Okay, and this capacity is irrelevant to the language itself. I can learn the grammatical syntax or structure of Hebrew, English, French, etc. So could you please explain in simple words what exactly does a toddler know? What does it mean that he know the grammatical structure of a language without knowing any kind of a language? Well, first of all, we have an internal program, if you like, where our nature includes uh, principles of cognitive structure. Some of them are specific to language and the child does not come unprepared. Uh, same with vision and other capacities. We're organic creatures which have a genetic endowment. Unique genetic endowment for humans has no counterpart anywhere is a language faculty, which uh, provides a kind of a framework that allows an infant at birth, in fact, to begin to pick up characteristics of typically the mother's language, later other information. And by the time the child is uh, two or three years old, it has already mastered the basic properties of its language. It doesn't exhibit this information, but you can tell by experiment that in fact the child understands the fundamental properties of the language. It just grows in the mind. And children can do this for many languages simultaneously. There are a friend of mine who grew up in Latvia, uh, grew up with uh, five languages, didn't even know it until he was four or five years old. He just knew you talked to your parents in German, you talked to the kids in the street in Latvia, and you talked to the teacher in school in Hebrew, talked to some other kids in Russian. It just, it's like a sponge, you can't stop it. Uh, because you're essentially pre-programmed to react in this way. It's rather the same way in which your visual system gives you an enormous amount of understanding of the world that goes far beyond any data that's available to you. So this is a form of natural growth. Uh, shaped by genetic endowment. We have a faculty of language, which uh, apparently emerged pretty much along with Homo sapiens a couple hundred thousand years ago, and uh, is fundamentally a system of uh, thinking, of thought. You, uh, it can, language constructs the thoughts in your mind, the thoughts are what you can express in language and uh, just a unique human endowment that you can't child isn't taught and doesn't really learn just absorbs from the environment enough information to get this internal system running 
which is even true for simple things like the meaning of words. If you look at the meaning of a simple word, it's pretty complicated, but children acquire the words with almost no experience. What do you mean by, by the mean of different words are very complicated? Could, could you give me an example of a meaning like the meaning of glass can encapsulate many different kinds of glasses? Well, what's, what's glass? Uh, something can look like a glass physically, but not be a glass. It could have been designed to be a paperweight, let's say, and to be used as a paperweight. So it would be a paperweight that looks like a glass. Actually, this was discussed by Aristotle. His example was house. He said, uh, what's a house? Well, in his metaphysics, a house was an amalgam of matter and form. The matter of the house is the timbers, the bricks, and so on. The form is the... The design, purpose. The purpose, the intention, the characteristic use, and so on. Now, a child has no information about this. Child, there's no data that says you have to understand every object in terms of both the matter of which it's composed and the design and the usage and the intentions and so on. It just comes automatically because that's built in. And when you look beyond, it's far beyond that. What you so, say, what you say is so true because a, a, a toddler can distinguish between a cat and a dog, even though we only seen so little examples of cats and dogs. And therefore it brings us back to the idea, to the idea world of Plato where they like, we, we have like the, 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 the idea of what a cat is. Now, my question is, according to the Torah, what distinguish human beings from other species is the ability to talk. This is, was in Genesis where, when God said, okay, you are special, he gave, he gave us the ability to talk. Now, Roger Scroton in, the, in his book, The Human Nature uh, said, we have something that is completely different than mammals that can understand words. We have chimps that can understand like 200 words, but any, any uh, Chomskyan linguistic, we laughed at those tries to attribute language to, to, to chimps. Would you agree on that? That our faculty, what we have as human beings is inherently different in the context of language than other very sophisticated mammals? The very sophisticated mammals? It's completely different than uh, our closest relatives, apes. So there have in fact been extensive efforts to try to train chimpanzees, gorillas, uh, extensively to see if you can get any language-like behavior out of them. And you simply can't. I mean, the most extensive experiment was actually named after me. It was called Nim Chimsky. <laughs> very good psychologists, uh, some former students of mine, good researchers, tried to raise a chimpanzee from infancy about the way you'd raise a child, except that they worked very hard on it with extensive training. Child doesn't get any training, just picks it up. But they worked 
really hard to try to train the chimpanzee to do something language like. At first, they thought they were getting somewhere. The first couple of years, there were some optimistic uh, uh, publications coming out. Then when they looked at the data carefully, turned out the chimp was just fooling them. It was doing nothing. It could not do anything. It couldn't grasp the concept apple, let's say. It just knew that if it made certain signs, uh, I don't know, put them into a bunch of other signs, sometimes it would get a banana, you know, things like that. But the, the, the fact about uh, with humans is beginning with the most elementary concepts like cup, cat, house, so on, nothing remotely like it in any animal. And so, then the next thing, we have a capacity was recognized hundreds of years ago for infinite generation. We can construct infinitely many thoughts which have never been expressed before, which are new to us, new to our, somebody we're speaking to, perfectly well understood. Uh, we do it in ways which are appropriate to situations, but are not caused by the situations. We could start talking about something else right now if we chose. Uh, all of these are capacities which have no counterpart anywhere in the animal world. It's a uh, so capacity for construction of thoughts, expressing them, using concepts that don't exist anywhere in the organic world. So, so this is new with humans. So we can say that we all agree upon that language is very useful, very, very useful, extremely useful. And would you say that the question why evolution didn't develop language in other species like apes is a good question? No, evolution doesn't do anything for a purpose. That's a mistake. Evolution just happens. Accidents happen. So let's take... Uh, okay, uh, just a second. So let me rephrase my question. Why this, uh, what do you think, why natural selection, why natural selection in the context of language works for human beings and didn't work for other species? Is that a good question? Well, if we look closely, it turns out that natural selection probably had almost no role in language. What appears to have happened here, we, we don't know a lot about uh, proto, uh, early human history. There's not much evidence, but there's some. It turns out that uh, humans began to, we know from genomic evidence that humans began to separate at least 150,000 years ago. Uh, humans appeared modern, anatomically modern humans, two to 300,000 years ago. In evolutionary time, these are blink of an eye, which means that it, pretty much as soon as humans appeared, shortly after they began to separate, they all share the same language faculty. So you go to the, we, 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 there are groups in Africa that are uh, whose ancestors were among the first group to separate the Song people in Africa. 
same language capacity we have, which means that it was already there before the separation. Now, if you look at the archeological record, there's no indication of any meaningful symbolic activity before modern humans appeared, maybe a chip on a bone or something, but almost nothing. Not long after humans appeared, you get very rich and complex symbolic activity. When I say not long, I mean tens of thousands of years, which is nothing again in evolutionary time. What appears to have happened is that some small change took place, rewiring of the brain, probably some mutation. Uh, nature did what it always does in such a case, constructed the simplest way of dealing with the new disruption, which happened to be language, and it hasn't changed since. But that seems to be pretty much the story of language. But my question is, what would you say to a person who learned seriously your work and say, wow, Chomsky really, you know, really has a point. And now after reading Ch Ch Chomsky's work, I now no longer think that we are in the same line with, with the animal kingdom. I think that what Chomsky showed that there is something inherently different in human beings that distinguish them from all other animal kingdom. Would you say that this conclusion stems for your work? That's true of almost every animal you think of. I happen to live in the desert. And uh, if I look at the desert ants out in my backyard, uh, they have incredible cognitive capacities that humans can't begin to duplicate their navigational capacities are incomparably beyond anything that humans can achieve, except with complicated instruments. So they can determine whether they're in the Northern or Southern hemisphere. Uh, they can uh, uh, tell where the azimuth of the sun is, you know, the point right below where the sun is. Uh, can they can wander around the desert, find some food, go straight back to the nest, dead reckoning it's called, which humans can't do. They're unique. Okay, unique it's a good answer, but uh, okay. Okay, but anyway, it's a good answer. Another question that I have now, a common wisdom today that the theory of the book 1984 is wrong. In other words, you can express any idea in any language. And if you don't have a particular word in a particular language, you will eventually come up with a, with a new word for this. Now, but after reading some of Guy Deutsch's uh, work, do you think that although this is the case, the language itself in some aspect color the thinking of people? So we said, if you think in one language, in one language it, it will color the way you look at the world, your thinking process, or there is no coloring whatsoever. There is a thesis, it's called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, uh, which goes back about 80, 90 years. Yes, but after your work, Sapir was before your work. I, I say after your work, after, your, after what Chomsky and Pinker have shown us, after everything, 
Now, do you think that in some aspect, not all the aspect, we, language does make, does make a difference? Well, I was saying this thesis has been explored experimentally for about 70 years now in efforts to try to show that the language you speak shapes your understanding of the world, your interpretation of things, uh, your perception and so on. Very little evidence. Uh, there's superficial changes, like in a language that doesn't have words in a certain region of the color spectrum, say the red pink spectrum. Well, their speakers of that language will have reduced limited capacity to make distinctions that you have if you have the words, but that's trivial. You have oh. a way of using them, but there's almost nothing that's been found that goes beyond that. So there are many languages, mostly, uh, except for, you know, great number of languages have no words for numbers beyond the small numbers, maybe up to four or five. But when you investigate those people, turns out they have the number concept. They just use other means to express it. So if they want 10, they'll go like that. You know, If they move into a market economy, they can handle it in no time. So the concepts are all there and uh, they come out. They're probably some marginal different. Well, you're bilingual, you can ask yourself. Uh, basically, you see the world the same way. Yes. Now, the theory of Guy Deutscher, I think, is what distinguish language is what, not what they don't let you express, is what they force you to express. In other words, when I say yesterday I had a dinner with a friend, you as an English speaker don't know whether the friend is male or female, but in Hebrew or in French, I must give you this fact. I said, I had Italia im chaver with a friend or with a girlfriend with Chavera. So Hebrew and French force you to give these certain types of facts that English doesn't force you to give. Yeah. Now, but the question have, is, okay, the, so what? Okay. You have the same thoughts. Yeah. You just express them in slightly different ways. So male and female, you understand in English. Uh, if I say, uh, the person was here, she left, I know what it is. Okay, um, the, uh, these are very, it's true that languages express thoughts slightly differently, but when you look closely in the internal structure, they're no different. In fact, it may turn out even, we don't know this yet, but research is tending in the direction of perhaps showing that the internal language, the language that constructs thoughts may be uniform among humans. The ways languages differ are the way we externalize it. And the externalization can be quite different. In fact, you can do it if you're, uh, if you're deaf, you can do it in sign. It looks very different, but turns out the same thought processes are going on. Okay, now my last uh, language question. I, I have a PhD in computer science and uh, I specialized in deep learning, NLP, all, 
all the things. Now, let me just remind my viewers that NLP or NL stands for natural language. It's natural language processing and natural language stems from the important work of Noam Chomsky. Now, now that we have GPT-3, that we have Baird, that we have all the insanely smart models of understanding natural language, do you think that we are close to really grasp the meaning of language with the new model? For example, GPT-3 or other models that Google is working on? We know in advance that GPT-3 and the other systems tell us zero about language. And it's very easy to demonstrate. So take the most sophisticated system you have. Uh, you give it trillions of uh, examples from language, it'll find patterns and it'll repeat the patterns. If you give it the same, not even examples from data from impossible systems, systems that couldn't be languages, that violate all the principles of language, it does just as well. So it's telling you nothing about language. These are engineering systems, not science. They're not telling you anything about the world. They may be useful for many purposes, like uh, I use the Google Translator, it's useful. It's brute force, says nothing about language. Uh, these systems are, uh, and whatever purpose they have, it's, uh, it's kind of like a bulldozer. I'm glad we have bulldozers <laughs> that shovel snow by hand but they tell you nothing about language. And we know they can't tell you anything because of this simple fact that they work just as well for things that violate all the principles of language as they do for things that, are, that conform to them. I mean, it's as if I went to a quantum theory con conference and I said, I have a great new theory of elementary particles. It accounts for all the properties of elementary particles and all the properties of impossible particles. Nobody would stop bother to listen. <laughs> but again, it is useful. And I think that many people in the industry, Gary Marcos, Melanie Mitchell, many good thinkers, many brilliant thinkers, thinks uh, the same way that you think that those natural language processing are not even close to grasp the meaning of language. They're extremely well in figuring out statistical correlations. But we will wait and see. Maybe in the near future or in the far future, we will have something that will produce real, what we call artificial general intelligence. And again, I must mention that the Turing test, which was coined, I think, in like over almost 100 years ago, involved language. If a computer can speak, can communicate. This is like the big sign of language. Would you agree with Turing? He, he, he had something? I have to look back at Turing's paper, 1950. Interesting paper. It uh, established the field of artificial intelligence. Uh, Turing in the paper says the questions whether machines think is too meaningless to deserve discussion, okay? What he said is, 
here's a test which might give a way of encouraging improvement of software, building better machines. It might change the way we think about thinking, but it's not telling us anything about thinking. Now, of course, Turing himself, his concept of what later came to be artific called artificial intelligence is that it should be a way of trying to discover the nature of intelligence using the device of computability of programming and so on. Now, artificial intelligence split into two different directions. There were people like Turing, Marvin Minsky, one of the founders of the field, a friend of mine, others, who did want to pursue Turing's program to develop systems that would give, shed some light on human intelligence through the method of model, modeling by programming. There's another branch of artificial intelligence which said, let's construct something that works, even if we do it by brute force. So let's construct a Google Translator by brute force, and it works, so it's useful. That's a different branch of artificial intelligence. Uh, like it or not, it's the second branch that has taken over. It is funny because last week I had a talk with Judea Pearl, and, he, and, and we discussed the Turing test, and he said, if you can fake it, you have it. So, but I think that this is a whole new discussion. So with, with your permission- Let me say one yes. more word about the yeah. Turing test. The Turing test was actually proposed in the 17th century by Jacques de Cordemois, a Cartesian philosopher. Uh, Descartes argued famously that mind is separate from body and the mind is a property. And the, one of the distinctive features of mind is this creative aspect of language use that we were discussing. So Cordemois said, well, let's suppose we could construct, we had a creature who looked like us and we want to discover whether he had a mind. So notice this is a metaphysical question now, either has a mind or doesn't have a mind. Okay, and uh, the way we would do it, he said, is by tests. We would give language tests. We try and see when we say something, does the creature respond in the proper fashion? And you run through a series of tests. This is the Turing test. Uh, then if the creature passes all the tests, it would only be reasonable to assume that it has a mind like ours. Now that's science. That's like asking for a litmus test for intelligence, where intelligence was a property distinct from matter in the Cartesian framework. Uh, the Turing test isn't science. It's not trying to find a property that the creature has. It's asking how well can you do in simulating something? Could be useful for it's an Turing purposes. Yes. It is useful it, for engineering. I, I, I never thought about it in this way and I need to rethink about it. <laughs> okay, now uh, with your permission, okay, so this is language and this is great. Now uh, with your permission, let me move to uh, the harder questions. And I did my best to rephrase them uh, politely. Now, you and I, I think, are, many, are different in many aspects. 
I'm a conservative Orthodox Jew living in Israel and basically think that Israel is the good side in the story. And you couldn't be farther away. But I think that we share many things in common in our, uh, in what we want to strive. We strive for a better world. And we want to make the world a better place. And I will even say that this is a Jewish thing, like tikkun olam, make the world a better place. And I want, I wonder what the things that distinguish us. And I came to what I think is the Thomas Soil conflict of vision. Is this what distinguishes us? I, am I in the constrained theory and you're in the unconstrained? So how could we both seek for the same thing, make the world a better place, and so profoundly different in many aspects of life? We're both human beings. We share many things, like the language capacity, like moral capacities. Turns out when you study comparative moral systems, and in fact study children's moral judgments, you find many commonalities. Uh, there's fundamental principles that seem to be very widely shared in the human species. Now, when you then come to actual real life situations, many other factors intervene and you get, you, you may reach different judgments, but even with the same moral principles based on your different interpretation of the phenomena around you the events around you, the experiences, your own history, your own culture and so on. So many different factors intervene to determine how we perceive things, how we react, how we interpret things, even though we're fundamentally the same. Uh, that's true of uh, our, what are called physical characteristics too. Now you look different than I do, but from the point of view of an ape, we're identical. Uh, just like when we look at two chimpanzees, we can't tell the difference between them. They're just chimpanzees. Chimpanzees can tell the difference. They and, see a lot. And I can tell, and I can say that you are not familiar with the facts, or neither do I know not familiar with the facts. In other words, when I heard when I hear you discuss, for example, the U.S. foreign policy or the Israeli-Palestine conflict. You are well established in the facts. You know the facts. So it's not that you that you or I are missing very important facts. Listen, but you didn't know about ABC. You know the facts, but I think that something is profoundly different in the way you look at things. And it is strikes me as hell because I, in Israel, yes, the name Noam Chomsky is a very, is a notoriously famous name. Okay, and my grandfather always told me, if someone loves you, he will critique you. Anything that this is what you do, yes? If you love someone, you critique him because you want him to be better. And this is what, what my grandfather told me. Now, my question is, can I take the analogy of my grandfather and apply it to you. So listen, I love, I am part of the Jewish people. I love the Jewish people. I love the state of Israel. Therefore, I am one of the harshest critics because I want it to be better. It is not sufficiently good as I see what it should be. 
or it is a completely different story from your perspective? Why is it different? No, no, no. I, I ask, no, because I, the, 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 I think that the question is, do I critic from love? Listen, I love you, therefore I want you to be better, A, B, C. You should do this better. And that, this, I think that the, we know that critics or that, that comes well, from love is different than critics that come from, I don't care. Well, what is it that you love, the state of Israel? You ask me? Yeah. Wow, this is a great question. And <laughs> my first, 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 it's my house. First, it's my home, it's not house, it's home. And second, I think as an Orthodox and a religious Jew, I think and I want to believe that the state of Israel is here to express something good for the world, to say, listen, this is how we should behave. This is God's place on earth. This is light upon to, upon to the nations. Now, we are not there yet. Absolutely. We are not light upon the nations yet. But I think that what the Jewish people need to do is to strive to be light upon to the nations. Okay? And well, I think that we are heading in this direction. Well, first of all, we have to distinguish the Jewish people from the state of Israel. Okay. Definitely. So, let's be clear. To love a state is paganism. Uh, I had a long, you, I'm sure you knew, uh, Yeshayahu Leibovitz. Yeah, very, yeah, definitely. I had a very long discussion with him about this. Uh, must have been 30 years ago, 25 years ago. Uh, he, he regarded, like you, he's an Orthodox, he was an Orthodox Jew. He regarded love for the state of Israel as a disgrace, paganism. You don't love states. Uh, he regarded that as a deep disgrace of the modern Jewish people. And, uh, but he, nevertheless, his dedication to Israel was total. Cared That's nothing okay. about the Palestinians only about Jewish rights. He was very much like my grandfather from the shtetl in that respect. Is it good for the Jews is the only thing that matters. Didn't care about Palestinians, didn't care about anyone else. But uh, he didn't love the state. In fact, he, in many ways, I wouldn't say despised, but was certainly deeply critical of the state. So these are distinctions we have to make. Uh, I don't think we should love states I don't love the United States as a state. I, have, I don't love the state of Israel. I don't love the state of France or any other one. You shouldn't love states. Yes, but you it's like that you say that they don't love the flag because the flag is just a piece of cloth. And you are absolutely right. The flag is, a piece, is a, just a piece of cloth. But what we say about the flag is what this piece of cloth represents to us. Usually, yes. It's not that the piece of cloth is meaningful, is the meaning that we imply to the piece of cloth. Would you agree? So you should have, if you happen to be concerned about Israel, either because you live there like you, or because it's just part of your culture, history, background like me, then you want the state of Israel, the, commu the community, the state to be as best as possible. 
you're in favor of tikkun olam starting with Israel and every other country. Okay. Okay. If you have interested in, if you have a special interest in Luxembourg, you want Luxembourg to live up to the best ideals and so on. So you have you have a special interest in the community of Israel as yes. part of your heritage. And what you and, and, and you consider your work and your and I think that you have a very harsh, very strong, strong, and in some ways true critics for the Israeli policy. And this is part of your listen, I want Israel to be as best at, as it can be, the community, not the state as soil and uh, and sand, yes? I'm not sure exactly what you're driving at, but it's true that it's part of, as I said, starting with my childhood, uh, reading Hebrew with my father every night. That's a, a part of my life ever since then. So of course I want the state to live up to the best values and ideals. Uh, and I, I'm very different from Yeshayahu Leibovitz, but on that we agreed. No, when, yes. When I say, when I hear, for example, Hassan Asrallah said something bad about Israel, and you say something bad about Israel, I need to say, listen, these are two separate things. Hassan Asrallah wants the, to, to exterminate, to kill, to make the state of Israel gone forever. But Noam Chomsky is a different guy. He wants state of Israel to be better. Okay? This is how I should treat well, critics should, from you. I should clarify. Uh, from in the 1940s, before the state was established, I was a very active Zionist youth leader, Hebrew, uh, Hebrew revival of Hebrew, Zionism, and so on. Considered to move to the kibbutz. But I was opposed to a Jewish state. You have to remember that in the 1940s, you could be an active Zionist and think a Jewish state is a bad idea. I still think that. I still think the same thing. I don't think a Jewish state or a Christian state or a Muslim state or any of these things should exist. Uh, there should be communities, I don't even, not even in favor of states. Like if state systems erode, I think that can be beneficial. I should tell you one of my experiences when I lived in Israel for a while, 70 years ago. <laughs> uh, was, it is very different now, Norm, very different now. <laughs> very different. I was uh, in a kibbutz at the time for a couple of months and I was, I was in, in my 20s, young person. I was hiking up in the Northern Galilee one evening and uh, a Jeep pulled up in a road behind me and somebody got out of the Jeep and started yelling at me to come back. I said, what's the problem? He said, you've crossed into Lebanon. Okay. At that point, there was no Lebanon-Israel border. Now, of course, it's bristling with weapons. That's the way it ought to be. The Lebanon-Israel border is completely artificial was established by British imperialism, British and French imperialism, like almost all borders in the world. If these borders were to erode, I think it would be very beneficial to everyone. So to the extent, let's take Europe. Uh, for centuries, 
the main goal of Europeans was to slaughter each other, massive slaughter. 17th century, 30 years war, about probably a third of the population of Germany was wiped out over religious disputes. Well, 1945, that ended. Since then, Europe has moved slowly towards erosion of state borders. There's some positive, some negative aspects of it, but the elimination of the state conflict is a beneficial thing. Yes, so but- I'm in favor of states, but let if, alone a Jewish state. But if, that doesn't mean I'm any different in attitude toward what should happen to the community of people there than I was 70 years ago. But many people who say, okay, I hear what Chomsky says, and then he reads The Strange Jests of Europe by Douglas Mary and said, mm, maybe Chomsky just speak about him and people like him, but if you ignore, but if you abolish the concept of state, what will happen is what happened in Europe. And this is, and according to Douglas Mary, the strange death of Europe is part because, you know, we abandon the concept of states. Yes, but, 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 but okay, this is like a, a big discussion and your time is so precious. So with your permission, let me go to two other questions. Okay, now- Let me mention yes. one other example of elimination of states, the place I live. The country in which I live is called the United States. Well, until 1860, it was plural. These were the United States, different states happened to be united. There was a horrible war, one of the worst wars of modern history, which turned it into singular. Now the United States is, not the United States are. Yes, but it didn't succeed with Canada. It didn't succeed with Mexico. So we might say that, listen, the people in the United States, you know, from the south to the north, encapsulate a different psyche, which is different than the people in Canada and the people in Mexico. Therefore, we don't have America, America as a whole. We have United States, we have Mexico, we have Canada, and therefore. Well, let's take a closer look at that. I happen to live not far from the Mexican border in an area that was conquered in a brutal war of aggression in which the United States conquered half of Mexico. Now, up until the 1960s, it's not that far back, people used to cross pretty freely across that artificial border. Mexicans would come to work in the fields in uh, California, picking fruit and so on. And then they'd go back and live with their families. And then they'd come back and they work season and work here. The border was pretty porous. An immigration law was passed in 1965, which prevented that, which made the border rigid. Bill Clinton came along, militarized the border for the first time. Now it's a very hostile, brutal place. Uh, people fleeing from horrible circumstances in Central America are criminalized brutally when they reach the border, not even given their legally required rights of asylum. That's a step backwards. The free passage 
relatively free passage across the border was much more civilized. Now, okay, and this is a good uh, a good point to raise, and another point I raise against it is like a chicken egg question, which come first. And you are absolutely right that borders do make some tension. The only question that we, as conservative, ask is what's the alternative? Is maybe maybe sometimes the alternative even worse? So again, because your time is so precious, let me ask you another two questions. Now, sometimes during the learning process, we come across a truth that changes the way we view the world. Similar to wearing a colored glasses, the tint our perspective and change our understanding. Now, this process happened to me during my research on human intelligence. Suddenly, many phenomena seems much easier to explain when wearing those symbolic intelligent glasses. And my question to you is, did you ever come across such a truth that made you look at many different phenomena in a new way? Sorry, I didn't grasp the question. Again, when I, when I learned about human intelligence and, and when you put like the intelligent glasses, suddenly many truths, many phenomena in, in in society, for example, the bell curve, seems much easier to explain using these intelligent glasses. So you, you grasp and you understand the world in a different way when putting the intelligence ingredient. And my question, did it ever happen to you when you suddenly many different phenomena became so vividly clear after you learned a new concept? that something new, that, oh, wow, now I understand so, ma so many phenomena in a different way. Happens all the time in scientific work. It's common. Actually, there's a famous physicist, John Wheeler, physicist at the Institute for Advanced Study in- In the Princeton, Manhattan Project. Who once said that uh, someday, maybe in a century, maybe in millennia, will somehow cross it, will come across an idea so simple, so obvious, that it'll make everything fall into place. And we'll wonder how come we never saw that before. Well, at a lesser level than that, it happens all the time. Anytime you're working on a problem, uh, this chaos, uh, all of a sudden an idea comes along, it all falls into place. And that includes the things we've been talking about. So the, what I was, what we were discussing at the beginning about the nature of language, you couldn't have possibly envisioned that uh, six, 50, 60 years ago. For m most linguists, it's incomprehensible today. I happen to think it's true, but it's a small minority. But if it's true, it's a simple idea that makes lots of things fall into place. Okay, it's or not take, a simple idea, but it's a great idea. <laughs> same in life. Take the anecdote I told you, walking across the Lebanese border. Well, that made me think about the world differently. Suddenly it struck me, why should we have these borders? It's meaningless. Never really thought about it much before. But here I am crossing a piece of land. There's nothing to distinguish north of it from south of it. A uh, violent imperialist power drew a line. The people across these lines 
have to shoot each other and hate each other. Uh, why can't they just live together? Okay. Okay. That's, now, uh, so. okay. This is great. Another question is Bertrand Russell, which is a philosopher which I highly admire, named one of his last interviews as 80 years, and you're 93, 80 years of changing beliefs and unchanging hopes. He said that he's willing to change his belief about the world and about how it goes, but not his hope for the world. And you're 13 years older than Russell now. Have you ever changed your beliefs on the world or ever changed your hopes regarding to the world? Have I changed my beliefs about the world? Yes. Enormously. I'll give you an example uh, involving Israel. I will um, so hope that you say, I, I believe that the, that the Israeli-Palestine peace process will be possible, but now after so many years, I change my belief. I think it's impossible using these partners, the Palestinians. I really hope that you're going to say this. Well, in this respect, I'm a conservative, not a radical. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, a conception that developed in the 1970s it, uh, that there should be, well, I'll quote a UN resolution. 1976, Security Council debated a resolution which called for a two-state settlement on the Green Line, internationally recognized border, with uh, guarantees, uh, Israel and Palestine, with guarantees for the rights of each state, I'm quoting it now, to exist in peace and security within secure and recognized borders. That was 1976. Uh, it was supported by Egypt, Syria, Jordan, tentatively by the PLO. They didn't take a strong stand, didn't object. Uh, Israel violently opposed it. Uh, Yitzhak Rabin, who was then prime minister, said, we will never deal with any Palestinians on any issue. Chaim Herzog, who's ambassador, later said that uh, this resolution was uh, created by the PLO, which was perfect nonsense, in order to destroy Israel. We'll never have anything to do with it. The United States vetoed the resolution. Well, that became a kind of international consensus. Uh, Israel uh, I won't run through the whole history. We don't have time for that. But I still think that I don't like that solution. I think it's an awful solution. Because as I say, I don't think there should be separate states. My own view from childhood was that there should be a binational community in the former Palestine and that the borders with other countries should erode. I still think that. But in the short term, uh, I think something like that Security Council resolution is the best, let's say the least bad of short term options. And I think it's still realizable. So you but, didn't change your beliefs. Well, you said, yes, I, I, I will give you an example regarding Israel. I said I'm a conservative on that. Yes. I, still, I still hold both beliefs that this is a, the best 
the least bad of short-term options and that the long-term option should be a binational community with erosion of borders that brings in relations with the surrounding areas long-term. But uh, on that, I remain very conservative. Okay, it's, it, it's, it's like, you know, I think that Thomas Soil said, said that some of those ideas are so uh, not related to, uh, are not so not related to reality that only academics can believe in them. <laughs> but, but I truly understand, I think that I truly understand your point. And the last question, which is the harshest, and I thought about how to, how to ask you this. When I prepared for this conversation and I did the massive preparation because, you know, speaking with you is, you are absolutely one of the giant of the 20th, 20th century. And it's a great honor for me. And when I prepared for this conversation, uh, many people, many people in Israel and many people in the Orthodox community in the US refer to what you're doing as, and let me quote them, as a self-hating Jew. And you yourself, you yourself, when you, uh, uh, when you quote them, you say that they, they are saying that you are Ocher Israel. And again, what your answers to them is we know, guys, you don't uh, pay attention to what I said, just who am I? It doesn't matter. Could you please, could you please uh, be more systematic? Could you please uh, answer to my arguments and not who am I? And I think that you are absolutely correct. But my question is, do you think that there is such a phenomena as a self-hating Jews, or it's it's a it's a conservative bullshit. Well, let's go back to the origins of this. It's Abba Eben. In 1973, so 50 years ago, he wrote an article in the uh, Congress Weekly, the Journal of the American Jewish Congress, the more liberal of the national Jewish organizations. And in it, he gave instructions to the American Jewish community. He said, it is your responsibility to show that anyone who is critical of Zionism, by which he meant critical of his government, the Mapai government, anyone who's critical of this is either an anti-Semite or a self-hating Jew. So that's 100% of criticisms, can't have any criticism. If it's a goy, he's an anti-Semite. If he's a Jew, he's a self-hating Jew. What he said is neurotic self-feelings of guilt. That eliminates all criticism, right? Now he actually gave two examples of self-hating Jews. One was I.F. Stone, who was a committed, dedicated Zionist, but critical of Israel. So he's a self-hating Jew. The other was me. I'm a self-hating Jew. Okay. By Abba Evans standards, yes. I was critical of his government. For example, I was critical of it for rejecting the Security Council proposal of, that I just mentioned and many other things. But does that make me a self-hating Jew? 
Well, if that's true, let's go back to Yeshayahu Leibovitz. Was he a self-hating Jew? He took a much more strong view than I do. I'm sure you recall. He said at the time that if Yes, you do please. not see him. You do not see him. Yeah, 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 definitely. But no, again, I don't want to address the question to you personally. I want to go to the broader sense and say, you know, I think that you are absolutely correct. The mere fact that I'm going to critique your policy doesn't mean that I'm either anti-Semite or self-hating Jew. And this is tautological because in other words, no critics is possible. And you are absolutely correct about this, absolutely. But my question is, we know now for a fact that there were Jewish who, Jews who helped during the Inquisition, okay? We know that there were reformed Jewish helped during the uh, Nazi regime. Now, this is something completely different from Ishayahu Leibovitch, yes? You're, but my question is, when I, even, even the holiday of Hanukkah, the first guys which the Maccabim went to were the Hellenic Jews, the Jews that went with Greece against, against the Maccabim. So my question is, if, you go, if we go back in history to in, in Inquisition, Hanukkah, and reformed Jews in Germany with the Nazi regime, can we encapsulate those phenomena and say, yes, there is a social, phenomenon, which is a self-hating Jews that emerges, I don't know why. Or you say, no, no I, I don't, don't buy into this. I mean, we have to look at them, take the Maccabees. You go back to that time, there were plenty of people who we would call Jews who were opposed to the Maccabees. They didn't want us, they regarded them as a terrorist organization that's causing, uh, that uh, they don't want to be part of. They weren't self-hating Jews. Uh, similarly, the uh, the Jews who didn't want to join the uh, uh, Bar Kokhba were not self-hating Jews. They had a reason for their position. In retrospect, made some sense. Uh, go back to the Holocaust. I mean, you ask about the Jews who cooperated with the Nazis. It was pretty horrible, but look at their situation. Can we just simply condemn them from our superior point of view? Suppose you're in that situation. I think they made a rotten, horrible choice, but it's not beyond our capacity to understand. Okay. Look at, okay. Okay. So, okay. I I think that you it's it's a it's a hard question, and I even you know didn't know whether to ask it or not. But again your name is so strong and raised so many emotions in Israel that I had to put it up front. And I think that you have a good answer, maybe. Okay. And, and so Noam Chomsky, thank you so much for your time and interview. This was great. Do you have like, my viewers are mainly young conservative, but not, but not all of them conservative, conservative and liberal, some religious, some not which all of them know your name. Do you have any advice to young Israelis who want to make the world a better place, you know, from Noam Chomsky? They don't have to turn to me for advice. <laughs> they know what to do. They can see what's around them. 
they can find the problems internal to Israel. There are many. One of them has to do with the Palestinians. The occupation is, first of all, illegal. Secondly, brutal, coercive, shocking. There are crimes being committed every day. There's discrimination inside Israel. There are serious problems about how to deal with the, how the Haredi and secular population should accommodate to one another. These are all problems inside Israel and the territories it illegally and cruelly occupies. All of these are problems that Israeli Jews have to face. They don't need advice from me. They can figure it out for themselves. I think the answers are pretty clear and I think they know them. You have to face them. So one of our harshest critics from the US says, listen guys, I want Israeli to be a light upon the nations and just make Israeli a better place. <laughs> make Israeli great again. <laughs> I would say that about every country. I would like, the United States does horrible things. I spend most of my life working on it, trying to make it a better place. Uh, not much I can do uh, to the extent that I can. I happen to have a special interest in Israel. So I write about it and think about it more than other countries, uh, but just for personal reasons. But I'd like to see every place be a better place. Let's it, work on it. Like, for example, if you live in Israel yes. and you know that today uh, hilltop youth in the West Bank will be going out and smashing up some uh, Palestinian settlement and tearing up olive trees and beating people up, you should want to do something about it. You should join the Israelis who are out there trying to protect them. That's one of the things you can do. I, I, I from another aspect, I live, uh, I teach in a real university and I see the world in a different perspective. But again, what you say is absolutely correct. And the only thing, horrible things are made in Israel and horrible things are made in the US. Uh, Howard Hughes, the people history of the US said, listen, we had slavery and we had the Native Americans and we had all the bad things. And don't, you know, scrub them under the rug. You need to discuss them. But other people will say, you are absolutely correct. There are horrible things made in the US. The, but only US has, only United States had the abolition of slavery, okay? And it seems that when you mention all the bad things, and you are absolutely correct, you, some things must be stopped, must be stopped. You don't pay enough attention to all the good things that the United States has done, the abolition of slavery, human, women rights, etc. So it's, it, it's like you have a pessimistic view of the world. You're absolutely correct. But what about all the good things? Because the United States, after all, is a better place to live than Syria or North Korea. It is much better place to live. Would you agree? Of course. But part of the reason why Syria is a horrible place to live is because of imperial power. France, Britain, the United States have played a major role in making 
Syria a hideous place to live, also others. So yes, the United States is highly privileged. It's the richest country in history, has unique advantages that no other country ever came close to. And uh, it's done many good things, many awful things. I talk about them all, all the time, but there's not much point sitting around saying, gee, what a beautiful, what a wonderful thing, what place we are in. What's important is to say, here's what's wrong, let's do something about it. There are plenty of people around who will give 4th of July orations saying we're the greatest place ever. We don't have to join them. We understand that very well with other societies. Like we didn't care very much what Sakharov said about, about praising Russia. We didn't want them to praise Russia. We wanted them to talk about what was wrong. Um, there was there was a famous Israeli historian, Mikhail Absegor. I don't know if you're familiar with the name. And he once told me that out of the five founders of the Communist Party in Russia, Lenin was the only one who didn't speak Yiddish. So the idea of, you know, doing a tikkun olam, say, listen, this is bad and we need to change it, is Jewish by nature. And I think that your 93 years proves this flawlessly. Noam Chomsky, thank you so much for your time. May God bless you and give you a lot more years to critic us and to produce good science. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. Enjoy being with you. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Thank you. אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. אז תנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהאורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת אתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט תראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים מדברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, הוא מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה.